focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines here on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, wow, the combo's back. Kwon Zwa and uh, Che Ji Hee joins us in the studio. Guys, welcome back. Good, Good evening. evening. <laughs> well, I was laughing. This is always, it's always these two, uh, the twins, right? The so-called twins. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we have a ton of uh, different headlines to cover on this day. We're going to start things off, of course, with uh, the big visit, right? U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen currently on this visit here in Seoul, uh, which included meetings with President Yoon Suk-yeol, uh, South Korea's finance minister, not to mention the BOK governor as well, economic security cooperation and other issues being discussed on this day. So let's uh, start us off with the latest here. Sure. So as part of her first trip as Treasury Secretary to the uh, Indo-Pacific, Janet Yellen this Tuesday met with high-ranking South Korean officials and also paid a courtesy call to President Yoon Seok-yeol in the afternoon. So let's focus on that meeting. President Yoon welcomed Yellen at the Yongsan Presidential Office, underlining the great timing of Yellen's visit that comes roughly two months after U.S. President Joe Biden was here in South Korea, where uh, Seoul and Washington have agreed to expand their alliance to a global comprehensive strategic alliance. Uh, in fact, uh, earlier this morning, also, um, Yoon had told reporters that he's expecting details on expanding the South Korea-U.S. alliance from a political security alliance to economic security alliance when uh, he meets with Yellen. And also, uh, Yellen did also mention during these uh, talks that uh, she is uh, hoping for South Korea and the U.S. to deal with important economic issues, not only when it comes to bilateral economic issues, but also on the global arena. And uh, with that, she also put great emphasis on the close partnership that the two allies have in terms of these economic issues. And also, there were talks about earlier, this has not, th this meeting itself was actually a closed door meeting, and uh, reports after that have not made specific whether this following topic was discussed or not. But we had earlier heard reports that sanctions, additional sanctions on North Korea to cut North Korea's cash flow could hmm. be addressed. And now after the meeting, uh, reports are coming out that this issue was highly likely being discussed at the meeting between President Yoon and the uh, Secretary Yellen. However, there were no details on that before. Prior to the meeting, however, Yellen did mention that the U.S. has further sanctions it can adopt on North Korea. But uh, it seems like before that, prior to the meeting, uh, there was nothing like set. Right. Uh, they have not, uh, South Korea and the U.S. have not decided on, you know, putting, uh, implementing additional sanctions. But Washington does seem to have uh, these sanctions in mind. And also, there were reports on that the two may have also discussed sanctions on Russia, for instance, implementing a Russian oil price cap. And also, there were no talks on the renewing of a currency swap agreement between uh, South Korea and uh, the U.S. However, that may have also been discussed. Uh, this um, swap agreement took effect in 2020 and expired last year. And also, uh, Yellen met with uh, the BOK Okay, Governor Lee Chang-yong and also the Finance Minister Su Kyung-ho. That's right. They have uh, also discussed related issues regarding bilateral ties on the economy and the finance. Yeah, sector. I mean, uh, you know, the way that the the global economic situation.
situation is right now is everyone's kind of linked, uh, but especially uh, here in South Korea, it's linked so closely to what's going on uh, over in the United States. But it is interesting that uh, Yenilin had uh, previously mentioned some uh, maybe possible sanctions on North Korea, because as you know, UNSC sanctions are not going through, right? It's just getting vetoed left and right by uh, China and Russia. And so the, the least they can do is these, uh, you know, U.S. sanctions in place, which I think it's it's a message to North Korea. Um, you know, North Korea certainly right now, uh, according to reports, they're still uh, thinking about uh, testing their seventh nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, basically the United States uh, sending out a message. Listen, we have more sanctions available for you guys if you decide you're going to test these nuclear weapons. Uh, so that's our message. Uh, but another interesting kind of visit uh, as uh, Janet Yellen is uh, in Seoul is if you remember when uh, President Joe Biden had visited South Korea, uh, what was the first place he toured? He toured uh, the Samsung. Samsung Semiconductor Chip Factory. Uh, this time, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen touring the LG battery facility today as part of efforts to tackle the uh, supply chain disruption issue. So, uh, Jihee, you have more uh, details on this. Right. So, Yellen visited LG Science Park this time, which is a research and development campus. And it's a gathering of the R&D centers of LG Group's eight affiliates. Uh, and it's located in western Seoul. So this was Yellen's first stop on her three-day trip to the country. And Yellen was accompanied by LG Chem's vice president, Shinakchar. She toured the facilities related to electric vehicle batteries. Now, she also looked at the semiconductors, uh, display and advanced materials related to batteries. And Vice President Shin said the EV battery business that LG Chem and LG Energy Solution are leading today uh, began thanks to the group's special relationship with the U.S., and here further explained that LG's research and development on EV batteries began in the U.S. back in 2000. And the U.S. had first provided the group the opportunity to carry on its endeavors regarding EV batteries in a market full of uncertainties. Now, the visit comes as the U.S. is seeking to build resilient supply chains with its allies, including South Korea, uh, in an effort to address supply chain disruptions and solve the issue of high inflation. And the U.S. also hopes to strengthen the economic security tie with Seoul. Uh, meanwhile, South Korea's battery maker, LG Energy Solution, has been aggressive in investing in building battery factories in the U.S. And it operates currently its own uh, factory in Michigan and another in Ohio with General and another is being built with General Motors. And like I said, um, additional construction is also underway in uh, Tennessee and Michigan for two other factories. And this is also being jointly built with GM. Now, during Yellen's visit, uh, she emphasized the importance of friend-shoring, which is a move to diversify U.S. supply chains with trusted economic partners that could help ease inflationary pressure and resolve supply bottlenecks. Uh, she added that she believes South Korea plays an important role in the supply chain as a producer of key parts, including EV batteries. And she said if the U.S. and South Korea can resolve the supply chain crisis through cooperation, the two allies' economic relations will be strengthened. And of course, the global economy will also become more resilient and sound. Yeah, so it's not surprising that uh, you had Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, visit the Samsung uh, semiconductor chip and then Janet Yellen visiting the, the battery plant because that's, that's like the 
two big things moving forward, mm-hmm. right? Like the United States certainly needs when uh, it does seem like uh, moving forward, all the everyone is going to be driving around in electric vehicles. So you need to, uh, both of those. Uh, so quite an interesting visit here. Uh, so we, we talked about that uh, possible new sanction against North Korea earlier, but uh, one country is trying to make North Korea ignore some of those measures. Russia, of course, uh, trying to employ North Korean workers for the reconstruction of two pro Russian breakaway states in Ukraine. Uh, we talked about this before, Donetsk region and the Luhansk region, uh, which the UN says it strictly goes against any sanctions against North Korea. So, so what tells more about this? Right. So following Russia's open remarks on its will to engage North Korean workers in the reconstruction of the Moscow-backed Donetsk, People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic in Ukraine's Donbas region, a United Nations official made clear that it's a UN Security Council violation to send North Korean workers overseas. On Monday, Russian ambassador to North Korea Alexander Matsegora said during an interview with a Russian media outlet that there's potentially a lot of opportunities for cooperation between North Korea and the Donbas republics. Last week, North Korea had stated recognition of uh, Russia's two breakaway entities upon which Ukraine cut its ties with the North. So anyway, the Russian diplomat was quite specific by referring to the, quote, high qualified and hard working Korean builders as uh, people who are able of working in the most difficult conditions. An official at the UN Security Council's panel of experts on North Korea, Eric Penton, Folk, however, criticized those remarks when speaking to Voice of America on Monday. According to the UNSC Resolution 2397, all North Korean workers overseas needed to be repatriated to the North by the end of 2019. So that's already three years ago. Uh, the resolution back then was adopted in 2017 following the North's launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile. And not only did Russia's envoy mention North Korean workers' possible involvement in construction work, but also uh, spoke about Pyongyang's interest in spare parts and units that could be manufactured in Donbass, so hinting on vibrant trade between Russia and North Korea through those projects. The UN official disapproved of all of these statements, saying he cannot believe that a senior diplomat could encourage the violation of existing UNSC resolutions that have been unanimously adopted by the Council. And that includes Russia, of course, when they made those discussions regarding the sanctions back then. And uh, as we know, the reason for why North Koreans are not allowed to work overseas was not simply to punish them for the firings of missiles, but it's directly linked to the North's missile and nuclear program as North Korean overseas workers were known for their hard work not to make their families indulge in wealth or anything. It was all foreign cash that would flow into the Kim Jong-un regime to eventually continue with the development of missiles and nuclear weapons. Yeah, we covered this topic on our Wednesday's uh, North Korea Now segment with one of our guests before and on why so many of these uh, North Korean workers head over to Russia especially. But it's interesting that in their remarks, right? Because, uh, what was it? I believe just last week when uh, North Korea formally uh, recognized mm. the uh, the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic as an independent state, right? Uh, uh, I, I believe the leader of the uh, the DPR, it's confusing, you have DPRK, K-N-P-R, which is uh, DPDPR, yeah. DPR, uh, Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, he came out saying, you know, we appreciate uh, the, the formal uh, recognition by North Korea. And through this, we can certainly ramp up our relations and also expand their trade. And, and now we're, we're kind of seeing this, right? We're, we're kind of seeing this. But again, 
it, it's it's really interesting how mm-hmm. how you know all these teams forming right now. Yeah. Uh, North Korea kind of into the mix right now, and how this is going to impact things. We'll have to see. Mm-hmm. And I quickly want to add, um, yeah. Russia is not is even a permanent member. The five permanent members of the UNSC. So that's why this UN official is even more yeah. Uh, yeah. criticizing this move. Certainly so. Uh, we're going to also uh, go into something that we did cover yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. Ji certainly uh, you were joining us on the show today. We talked about this mm-hmm. uh, foreign minister of South Korea, Park Jin, uh, holding his uh, talks with his uh, Japanese counterpart yesterday. And this is regarding the issue of compensating for wartime forced labor victims. We talked about how this is going to be the most important mm-hmm. topic of discussion if the two countries ever decide they're going to fully uh, improve their bilateral ties. So uh, let's talk about this to start things off. Sure. So according to the statements from the two sides after the meeting uh, held in Tokyo yesterday, South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin and his counterpart Yoshimasa Hayashi said they would seek an early resolution to the issue of compensating these wartime forced labor victims. Now, Park told Hayashi his government would seek a resolution uh, before the court in South Korea sells off Japanese company assets that have been seized for compensation. And Park said the Seoul government will make efforts to come up with a reasonable solution related to the issue as soon as possible. And so far, possible solutions suggested by observers of the new government's private consultation body include the creation of a fund with contributions from Korean and Japanese firms or the South Korean government compensating the victims on behalf of the Japanese companies. And the two sides shared their uh, understanding that liquidation cannot be carried out and that the issue must be promptly resolved. And a statement released after the meeting by the Japanese Foreign Ministry stated that Minister Hayashi sees the need to develop the relations between South Korea and Japan based on the 1965 accord aimed at normalizing bilateral diplomatic relations. Now, although understandings regarding the need to quickly come up with a reasonable solution were shared between the two sides, uh, specifics on how the Japanese companies will apologize and compensate for the victims as requested by them were not discussed in detail. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be really tough. So if Park Jin did say that the Seoul government is going to be making the efforts to come up with a so-called a reasonable solution, mm-hmm. like what is that reasonable solution? And then you have a number of uh, different uh, kind of people involved with the, uh, the solution aspect, uh, government's uh, private consultative body, and then you have the Korean and Japanese firms, uh, contribution for them, and then the South Korean government and so forth. The big question is whether or not the victims are going to be involved with the consultations, right? And so, like, like this is the big thing. Like, can you make everyone happy with mm-hmm. this? I, I just feel like there's going to be at least one side that's not going to be happy with this. But the fact is, if they want to re- fully resolve it, at least the Japanese side has to be happy. Then if the Japanese side is very happy, will the victims be happy is the other question so right. very difficult here but uh, also as part of his official pr- trip to japan foreign minister Park Jin also paying a courtesy call to uh, japanese prime minister fumio kishida this tuesday so uh, what would we have so far on that meeting well, South Korea's top diplomat Park Jin uh, met with Japan's leader, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, at Kishida's residence this afternoon. During the roughly 20-minute talks, the two reportedly exchanged thoughts on improving bilateral ties. 
Also, Park told reporters that he delivered a message from President Yoon Seok-yeol, which also contained the president's wish for better ties between Seoul and Tokyo. It was presented verbally by Park, not in a written letter. Yoon, in the message, mentioned uh, the first encounter he had with his Japanese counterpart after taking office at uh, the NATO summit in Spain last month and said he felt certain that he can work together with Kishida as a, quote, trustworthy partner to develop cooperative bilateral relations. He went on to say that he expects a faster mending of ties on the occasion of Minister Park's visit to Japan. President Yoon also expressed his condolences to the bereaved families of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and the Japanese people on behalf of the South Korean government and the South Korean people. Foreign Minister Park Jin uh, actually also paid tribute to the late former Prime Minister at an altar set up at the Liberal Democratic Party headquarters prior to his meeting with Prime Minister Kishida. Meanwhile, Kishida, according to Park, listened to Yoon's message in a very sincere manner and also said that he had great talks with Yoon at the NATO summit and hopes for the continuation of those. Foreign Minister Park uh, also expressed his hopes to Kishida on a meeting between Yoon and Kishida at a convenient time. So maybe we will hear from a summit in the near future, but no specifics have been mentioned yet on when that uh, could possibly be. At the NATO summit, uh, they only participated in a trilateral summit with uh, Biden, but did not hold a one-on-one. Yeah, it, it does seem like right now, uh, if like the big thing is on Park Chin, I think, uh, for Mr. Park Jin, because if, if he's able to kind of resolve the whole tensions between Seoul and Tokyo over the uh, forced labor issue and uh, other historical issues, uh, then I think is when uh, the Yoon Kishida uh, summit is going to take place in the future. So one, one step at a time, uh, you know, bottom-up approach at this time. It's interesting we mentioned any kind of approach like this, even with Japan, mm-hmm. uh, certainly shows how much uh, bilateral ties have uh, really soured over the years. Uh, in the meantime, the victims of the forced labor uh, requested the South Korean Foreign Ministry uh, on Monday uh, to clearly state whether the right to diplomatic protection applied to their situation uh, because the, the South Korean government presented a rather passive stance that the forced labor did not correspond with the requirements of the rights to diplomatic protection. So, Chi, tell us about this. This is a very interesting one. Right. So the members of a victim's advocacy group requested the South Korean government invoke diplomatic protection so that they can directly negotiate with the offending Japanese companies regarding the issue of forced labor. Now, they basically requested the uh, invocation of the South Korean government's right to diplomatic protection, which the Supreme Court of Korea's verdict ordering compensation for victims of forced labor recognized. And the right to diplomatic protection is, in fact, a right recognized by international law through which a country can demand a foreign government for adequate protection or relief of its citizens by taking diplomatic measures when those citizens have been subjected to illegal or unjust treatment abroad. And the victims claim that after the second public-private consultative group that they had, an official of the foreign ministry mentioned how the diplomatic protection right does not apply to the forced labor matter. 
And so uh, it was a claim deemed greatly regrettable by the victims. And regarding such a statement, the victim group requested the foreign ministry to explain why the forced labor issue does not fall within the requirements of the right to diplomatic protection. And the advocacy group also asked the Korean government to provide answers regarding uh, whether it believes wartime forced labor was an illegal act committed by the Japanese companies at fault alone, or whether the responsibility was in, in the hands of both the companies and the Japanese government. Uh, and the victims stated that the official requests are aimed at overcoming unnecessary misunderstandings regarding the matter that arose because of the foreign ministry official statement and said that they hope to see a clearer judgment and stance by the government regarding this. Again, you're, you're going to have to have the victims or the, I guess, uh, those representing the victims get involved right. with the discussions here because we talk about the 2015 uh, agreement, right, regarding uh, the for sexual slavery, right, uh, by the Japanese uh, imperial uh, military at the time. And uh, that was a big discussion. It was very controversial because it was done between the two governments and the, the victims themselves weren't in uh, part of the discussions here. And so in order to kind of really avoid a, a similar situation as the 2015 uh, deal that's you know widely regarded as very controversial, you're going to have to get the victims involved. And how do you get every side happy? I, it just... It's going to be really tough to get, you know, for the government, South Korean government right now, the current administration to make the victims happy and the Japanese side happy. And that is the biggest uh, task at hand. Uh, also, part of revitalizing cooperation between South Korea and Japan, the two are expanding flights from Kimpo to Haneda airports and uh, vice versa. We had uh, talks about this starting from, I believe, uh, last month. So, so uh, let's talk, give us the details on this. Right. As early as starting next Monday on the 25th, air travel between South Korea's Kimpo and Japan's Haneda could happen every day. According to Seoul's transport ministry this Tuesday, the Kimpo-Haneda route is planned to be expanded to up to 28 times a week, with each involved airline to be able to operate flights once a day back and forth. And uh, as I said, the change will come as early as next week, but there might be slight differences between the airlines depending on demand. Currently, meanwhile, it's eight times a week. More specific, Korean Air, Asiana Airlines, Japan Airlines, and all Nippon Airlines twice a week each. Mm. And uh, Esther, you just uh, mentioned it. If you remember, it's been quite recently that these flights operations have actually been resumed. Yeah. Uh, air travel for this route was halted in March 2020 until late last month due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So for the first time in two years and three months, they had resumed this route. And the resumption came on the heels of the new Yoon Seok-yeol administration that had stressed the need for the resumption of air travel between these two airports in order, again, to revitalize Seoul-Tokyo um, exchanges as well as the ties itself. And why does this specific route matter? It's because the Kimpo-Haneda route, uh, well, first to give you some background, it opened in 2003 and it has the advantage of accessible because for many people, Kimpo, for instance, for many people is, is more accessible than Incheon International Airport to people in the metropolitan region in South Korea. And the same goes for Haneda when compared to Japan's Narita International Airport. 
Now, before COVID, as of 2019, the four airlines that I mentioned earlier operated 84 flights a week. According to an official in charge of airline policies at Seoul's Transport Ministry, the recent move raises hopes for more visits by travelers and business people thanks to a wider selection to choose from when making trips to either South Korea or Japan. I wish I kind of knew this. Uh, I did go to Tokyo about uh, six years ago, I think it was, Mm -hmm. uh, almost six years ago, and I went uh, Incheon Narita route, which mm-hmm. <laughs> Incheon Airport is pretty far. And then yeah. I remember uh, touching down on Narita and then uh, trying to get over to uh, this city. And it was a long train ride. It mm. was a long, long trade. I had no idea what the big deal with uh, the Kimpo Haneda is. Now I do. Uh, let's talk COVID-19, guys. I mean, come on now. Uh, we're, we're back to talking about COVID-19 as one of the top issues once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about these resurgences and virus cases. Uh, it, man, it's 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 getting there to the hundred thousands once again. Uh, we had something over seventy thousand today, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the fatality rate, number of severe cases, it does remain stable. But we did talk about how if the daily cases do go up. We're obviously going to see those numbers go up as well. Let's get the numbers in detail here. Sure. So South Korea reported, like you said, a little over 70,000, 73,582 new COVID cases as of midnight Monday. And the daily caseload is the highest in 83 days now. Now, the total number of infections in the country has been raised to 18,861,593. And the number of infected people in serious conditions stood at 91, which is up 10 from the previous day. And there were 12 more deaths uh, confirmed, and now the total fatality rate still stands at 0.13%. Now, although the number of daily cases is surging, experts say the figures for severe cases and the deaths remain stable. But like you said, if the number of daily cases continue to rise, then we are definitely going to see the rise in these numbers as well. And the number of people receiving home treatment rebounded to 200,000 after going Jeez. down to 39,000 last 200, month. 200,000? Yes, in home treatment. Uh, yeah, and regarding the recent resurgence in the COVID-19 cases, President Yoon requested to just focus on taking care of the severely ill patients at the cabinet meeting, which was held earlier today. Yeah, you know, we talked to uh, Dr. David Kwok yesterday and mm. uh, whether or not uh, the lack of social distancing measures in place right now, it is the right things to, it, if it's the right thing. And he said, you know, in a medical perspective, yeah, it's still, because there's still very little mm-hmm. uh, severely ill patients and fatality, although we would love to see uh, less death, he was saying the numbers correlate to, like we see that many people die on a daily basis in other diseases, like respiratory diseases mm. as well. So it, it doesn't look as bad, right? But still, I mean, it, it's always like we were so close uh, yeah. and then it goes back. Like it's, it's a cycle all over again, right? Like remember like, was it uh, like two years ago when we had number, we had one day where it was like zero infections and we had like single digit and it bounced back up. It goes up and down, up and down. Yeah. Big question now is, I mean, these multiple resurgence, I can't, I cannot count how many different resurgences we had so far. And it's not just South Korea, it's the world going through this. Is this the new norm? of COVID-19. Like, what do you think is the future of COVID uh, as an endemic is going to look like moving forward here? So so our uh, former COVID expert <laughs> uh, chime us in on this. 
Well, I think uh, what we're seeing right now is not what we wanted to see as an endemic, right? Although many countries have turned towards endemic-like measures, meaning no more measures yeah. uh, when it comes to social distancing, for instance. However, now that we're really seeing these resurgences multiple times, these new variants, sub-variants, I really don't know when this will end and if this will end. So experts are actually saying that the current situation may actually be a new normal of covid as an endemic so that we really have to live with even these high numbers and uh, what they're saying is however regardless of the number of daily cases and those numbers are not even actually correct because many people are, are not testing themselves anymore so regardless of these uh, numbers severe illnesses and deaths are lower than in the past when we were dealing when we had the worst situations for instance during the delta wave so i think that's uh, pretty um realistic now that we're going to have to deal with tens of thousands of infections uh, and we won't be calling it pandemic anymore maybe in the coming year or so yeah i, I mean like you know we talked about this before but like we don't even count how many people get the cold yeah on a yearly basis like we don't i think people do count like the flu, flu numbers yeah. right like because flu is a little bit more serious like mm -hmm. people actually do die from the flu uh it's very rare that you die from the cold uh, unless you have like really really bad like respiratory illnesses and things like that and so i i feel like that's going to be what it is um and the fact is you know how like the cold right you catch the cold once you're going to catch the cold again yeah. like i for me i think on a annual basis before the pandemic uh, things have changed because you wear the mask nowadays. Uh, so you don't get, I haven't gotten the cold since I got, since the pandemic started. Uh, but like I used to get like two colds a year. But that's what it is with like COVID right now. I'm finding out that uh, people who've already been infected with Omicron, uh, they're getting reinfected. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't even know if the, like the COVID numbers, what, 18 million, 869, what is it, 861,593. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's including like two timers, uh, people that have been infected again. But nevertheless, it does seem like this is a new norm. Gee, what about yourself? Like, what's the future of COVID? My goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be the new norm. And at some point, we're going to stop counting the numbers and stop counting the resurgence. We're not going to make a big deal out of it in the future, in the near future. And yeah, like you said, like we get uh, the cold we, uh, every once or twice a year, depending on what type of a person you are. I think we're going to get this COVID-19 every once in a year and in the future, and we're going to get vaccinated. And I feel like uh, the social distancing measures will stay the same. Although, yeah, yeah. yeah. although I, I uh, feel like, for example, allowing people to eat in uh, movie theaters or in uh, trains still seem quite mm, not something that we should allow at this Hold point. Hold on. Even without COVID, I don't think you should be eating in subways. It's just it's like no manner. I'm not a big you're fan of it. You're talking about like uh, KTS. Oh, KTS. Okay, okay. Yeah. Like, Nowadays, okay. you're allowed to. Yeah, no, yeah. I think you meant subways. Exactly. Okay, never no, mind. you're allowed to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. KTX I, is different. You kind of seat it differently. Right, right. Seat it differently, differently and you yeah. usually travel for longer distances. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but still, I feel unsafe. Um, I mean, the severe cases, they're lower than before, and they, they say it's a lot more stable. But if you get it, it's a really hassle. I mean, you have to go through the self-quarantine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you don't really want to get it. And I feel like these kind of distancing measures uh, could be in place still. But, I mean, they've loosened it already. So, so people kind of took... Talking to uh, some people mm. uh, who had COVID and have been isolated, like I, I know one person, one of my colleagues uh, at Arirang, he works on the news too. He had two weeks of self isolation because he came in. This was like the, the early stage of COVID, mm. where like he came uh, in contact with someone who had COVID. I think COVID. I even know who you're talking yeah, yeah. about. <laughs> he comes back right, and like two weeks later, he came into contact again, and then he had two weeks, and oh. then he had COVID. And I believe he was uh, isolated for about uh, 10 days at the time. And we recently got COVID again one week. And so he was saying he took the self-isolation really poorly. Like it was rough on him, right? Um, I took the self-isolation pretty well. I think it's because I was able to work at home. Mm-hmm. Like it was, I was, it was almost, no, it wasn't normal, but it was as normal as it can get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have met people who did not fare too well just being stuck at home, and you you live differently, right? It's exactly. almost like, it's almost like a scene from Old Boy. Yeah, where, exactly. I felt like that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> how it is, and like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, our producer was telling us, you know, what, how he went through, and they literally give you like food from the front of the door, and like they play a uh, music, and it's now time to eat everyone, and you know, it's sad. So like psychologically, I think that's the big thing. Exactly. And I, I, I think we'll never get to the real. Like we keep talking about, is this the new norm? But mm. like we won't get to the new norm until the self isolation part it, it, that gets removed. And and I know that's not gonna, that's not a very popular idea mm. at this time. But eventually that's going to happen. Uh, I knew they were kind of tossing up the idea whether or not they were going to remove self-isolation. But I think now that we have uh, some resurgence, a little bit quicker than we had expected, I think they're leaving that in place. Yeah. But should at least reduce the days, though, like to five days at least. Five days? Was, was five days like the threshold? <laughs> like I think five days, seven <laughs> days? Can just <laughs> remain with seven days? <laughs> well, so, Not a so, big difference. But. So, 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 I, you know, it's tough. It's I mean, just because yeah. the virus still s- stays with you for a, a week. No, because mm-hmm. they say they're transmissible until like four days or something, three, four days. I think that's debatable. Yeah, but they, well, even with, like, okay, so even with like cold, right? Like, we let's talk about the cold. Mm. Uh, no one forces you to not come to work if you have the cold. And I'll be the first person to tell you, I've come to work with the cold before. Uh, flu is different. Mm. Uh, luckily, I, there was rare cases I had to flu. If I had to flu, I, you know, I'd stay home because I, that's very recommended, highly recommended. Uh, but if people are going out around uh, with the cold, I think eventually, if the symptoms of COVID nineteen gets, I guess, uh, I guess lighter and lighter and lighter over time, mm-hmm. eventually they're going to have to get rid of uh, these self quarantine measures. Psychologically, I, that's, I think that's the one aspect that people just don't talk enough about. It's, it's a psychological aspect. Uh, but we're going to end things off with some hopeful news. Uh, mm-hmm. We love hopeful news. Moderna is expected to release an updated version of his COVID-19 vaccine early as next month. This is good because we have expected something like October as in early mm-hmm. date. So uh, give us the, the latest. Sure. But actually, you know, earlier in the, the earlier we had even expectations that a new vaccine would be out in spring. But I think they... 
took more time to develop this because we continue to have new variants coming up. So now uh, the, we are talking about a new bivalent vaccine that Moderna and other vaccine makers have been developing. And this plan was actually revealed in Seoul at a press conference by Francesca Sedia, Senior Vice President of Respiratory Vaccines at U.S. Biotech from Moderna. So this is a plan to be out in late summer or early fall. Uh, this new vaccine is expected to be distributed uh, not only in the U.S., but countries like South Korea as well. And it's been developed to help against new Omicron variants like BA1 and BA5. And that's the one being the dominant yeah, strain in yeah. many countries. And I think today I saw that it's uh, also now uh, become the dominant strain in Korea. And uh, also the BA275 or the nicknamed Centaurus um, uh, subvariant. So it should uh, protect you much better than the earlier vaccines. And uh, we are not sure whether by late August we can actually get vaccine uh, with this new vaccine, but the Ministry of Food and Drug Safety is going to, as uh, soon as possible, once it is out, they're going to make try to approve it uh, within days as well. So let's wait uh, for a few more weeks or months to you know, have that vaccine. You know, uh, I've been uh, a pro-vaccine for the longest, and I still am, right? I think if uh, the update, upgraded version of the vaccine comes out, I'm probably going to get that mm. uh, just in case. But, you know, there was uh, so, someone brought this up. I just want to quickly mention this. They were saying that uh, the reason why these uh, new variants are popping up so quickly is because we had the vaccine in place so quickly. So, like, these viruses, right, they evolve. Like, oh. they're, they're a survival. Like, that's, like, the key thing in any kind of, uh, uh, you know, living thing, right? Humans, mm -hmm. animals, uh, viruses, bacteria. Like, they, the whole thing is trying to survive whatever right. crazy uh, environment that they're going through. And so because we had these vaccines in place so quickly, the viruses are changing to adapt that. And so because and then when you have a new vaccine, sure, you know, majority of them are going to be killed off. But those that survive, it's going to come back and be able to kind of fight off that vaccine, which means that we're just going to have new vaccine. That's, a, that's like with mm. the flu, right? That's the reason why we have a new flu vaccine right. every year. Uh, right. Because these, you know, the flu viruses, um, they evolve so quickly. So that's a new norm, everybody, I think. Uh, but what, do you, what can you do, right? Guys, uh, cheer up. Uh, I'm sure there'll be better news in the near future. <laughs> Man, I can't, I can't believe we're still talking about COVID. Uh, please stay safe, and uh, we'll see you guys again. See you again. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.